Good morning. We're going to be starting uh, in First Peter chapter one, and so if you want to be turning to that now, I'm going to do the reading and pray for the nation. Uh, just a, I guess not really an another announcement, but first of all, Izzy, you did a great job this morning, yeah. and all the. I think you might have potential for being a worship leader. <laughs> and everybody else, too. That's what I appreciate about this body. People step up to do whatever is needed to do whenever it's needed, and, and I really appreciate that. And uh, one other thing, I was reading this week, I get the Decision magazine, which is Franklin Graham's ministry, and I don't know if any of you others read the last page of last month's, but it's called Ruth's Attic. That's uh, Billy's wife, Ruth Bell Graham. And she had something that really caught my attention. It, it started, the title of it was Do Something. And the first line is, is really good. She said, there are times I have found when praying is not enough. God says, as it were, what are you praying for? Do something. And I started thinking about that, and I've sort of uh, been on this theme of challenging people to get involved in, in more prayer, uh, making it a priority. And I, I thought of uh, a couple of scriptures that I wanted to read this morning to challenge you to, to carve out more time and make it a higher priority because that's our first and best offensive weapon for our nation right now is prayer and that's one thing that we all can do uh, wherever we are but we can also do it not only by ourselves but corporately and we have a number of places that opportunities to do that in we have our Wednesday night prayer thing which we don't meet here anymore but Marie sends out every week which is just fantastic uh, three or four pages of, of good stuff to pray. Uh, we have the Tuesday nights, the first Tuesday of every month at Rock Creek. You could join us there at 7 o'clock, 7 to 7.30. And, and Laura Wall answered. Laura, where are you? Laura? Laura? Stand up, Laura. <laughs> she told me specifically not to make her do that. But, <laughs> but she, she answered the call, and she's developing starting in November, a daily prayer uh, sheet that we'll have available for you. And you just pick one up, and she outlines all the, gives you a target to pray for that day. You can just set it aside, take a few minutes, and pray it. And she's going to uh, administrate and head that up starting in November, so I'm excited about that. So lots of opportunities to plug into prayer and get involved and uh, connect with God and help our Help our nation. In Genesis chapter 22, it says, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. Now, this is Abraham talking. Who are the descendants? Us. Aren't we Abrahams? Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. 
In Exodus 14, the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. In other words, prayer requires, after we listen and wait on God, it requires an action. And so I want to challenge you with that of, uh, what can, I know I'm asking the Lord every day, what can I do for uh, this nation? So many people are doing so many things, but I, I want to do more. I feel like I, I need to do more, and so uh, I challenge you with that question. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Born again to a living hope, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that you have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. I just pray a special anointing on Mark as he delivers it on all of uh, your people as we hear it. I just pray that your Holy Spirit would open up our hearts and minds and, and convict us, Lord. As, as we hear your word, I thank you that as it goes forth, uh, it's, uh, it enlightens us. It prompts us to, to act. And Father, we as a, a nation, we need to act as your body. On your behalf, we just thank you for uh, this country, the many blessings that we have taken for granted for so many years and now we see uh, being attacked. Father, I just wanna lift up our leaders of this country. I pray that your Holy Spirit would open up their eyes 
I pray, Father, that you would raise up godly men and women to answer the call in our federal government, in our state government, in our local government. Lord, people with a heart to, to please you first and to honor you. Lord, I just pray now that uh, your Holy Spirit would meet us in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we get started, I want to just uh, say a couple of words here. Um, so it has been uh, a season of reflection amongst the leadership here as to what God is calling us to do, what God is calling this church to do. And your leadership believes that what we're being called to as a body is to strengthen the family. And that's what prompted the start of the discipleship groups. And we decided as a, as a leadership group, and, and I believe with the leading of the Holy Spirit, to start off by strengthening men, to take the lead in their families, the lead that the Bible calls us to, in teaching their children and walking with their children and, and uh, sharing the word with their families, their children and their wives. And we haven't done a good job, to be honest with you, of of conveying this, this goal because we're still waiting. We're still listening and, and praying and, and waiting for God to show us exactly the direction we need to go. We have some ideas, but we haven't really firmed those ideas up yet. But part of this whole project, part of this whole calling is going to be believers and their families worshiping together. It's going to be worshiping together at home. It's going to be worshiping together at church. And some of you, hopefully at some point all of you, are going to want your children in the church with you. And we encourage that. And so we've been talking a lot about love as Jackie's gone through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And here's an opportunity for you to share love. And probably grace as well. So if you are a family and you desire your children to be in the service then by all means bring them. But remember, there are also some of us who are older. And we are not used to children being disruptive and distracting in the service. And so when that happens, what we ask you to do is to be mindful of the older folks, including myself in this, who are not used to having children in service and your child or your infant is making noise and being a distraction, take them out. Calm them down, bring them back in. If they absolutely can't be calmed down, we have crying rooms with TVs where you can go and sit and still be with your family. And so let me encourage young families, bring your kids in here, but please be aware of the fact that children can be a distraction. And let me encourage the folks of my generation to share a little bit of grace and try to allow those families to worship together. This is the direction God is calling us. We believe this with all our heart. And we don't know yet how we're going to get there, but we will get there 
if this is truly God's call. Okay, so let's, uh, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to 1 Peter. And I have to tell you that the last time I, I jumped into a, a session for Jackie, uh, I only did one verse, and I kind of felt bad about that. I think it made it difficult for him to pick up the next week. Uh, and this time I decided I would do 12. <laughs> and that might have been a mistake. But we'll see. I'm going to do my best to go through the first 12 verses, and, and we'll talk a little bit about that. So before we begin, let's start with a little bit of background. As indicated in the first line of the greeting, First and Second Peter were written by the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' first disciples. Now, there's a lot of folks who question whether or not Peter uh, was actually the author, whether he used a, uh, a scribe or or uh, whether someone else wrote it and claimed Peter to give some authority to the epistle. But the fact of the matter is most church fathers, all the church fathers, and most current theologians agree that Peter was, in fact, the author. There are good uh, uh, rebuttals to all the arguments against that. I'm not going to go into that this morning because I've already probably bit off more than I can chew. But trust me, it's generally accepted that Peter the apostle is the author of First and Second Peter. Peter is referred to in scripture by a variety of names, including Simon, and Simon was his given name. Uh, also, he's called Simeon, Cephas, which is Aramaic for Peter, and of course, Simon Peter, one that we all recognize. Of all the disciples, I think that Peter is probably my favorite. You know, I, I like to think that I'm like Paul, that I'm a deep thinker and a, and a writer with an even deeper understanding of spiritual things. But the truth is I'm much more like Peter was before Pentecost. Rash, harsh, rushing in where angels fear to tread, and too often needing to remove my foot from my mouth. In short, a bit of a knucklehead. The New Testament gives limited information on Peter's life and background before his call to discipleship. We know that his father's name is John, and his brother's name is Andrew, who's also a disciple of Jesus. Peter grew up in Bethsaida, Bethsaida, a fishing village on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and operated a fishing business in partnership with the Zebedee brothers, James and John. He was apparently married, and later he lived in Capernaum. Jesus gives Peter his name in John 1, 40 and 41. It says this. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. In Luke 6.14, we read Simon, whom he also named Peter. And so Jesus gives Peter this name, and it kind of, re it kind of acts like a nickname. It, it, it doesn't merely give him a new name to replace the old one. As we see in Scripture, those names become interchangeable. He also named him Peter, Luke said. Jesus sometimes refers to him as Simon, sometimes as Peter, 
and sometimes a Simon Peter. Now, I would venture to guess that you would all agree that sanctification is not a straight, smooth road. The Christian life is filled with bumps, turns, and potholes as we seek to grow more and more like Christ. Hopefully, we'll show the Spirit in increasing measure, but the flesh of our former life still rears its ugly head from time to time. Can I get an amen? This biblical reality is shown not only in our lives, but also the lives of all the apostles, but I think most especially in Peter's life. So, as I said, Peter was kind of a nickname. It means rock. Petros is the Greek word for a piece of rock or a stone. And I believe the nickname was significant, and the Lord had a specific reason for choosing it. By nature, Simon was brash, undependable, and outspoken with the habit of putting his mouth in gear while his brain was still in neutral. He tended to make great promises he couldn't follow through with. He was one of those people, and we've all known them, and if we were honest, we've all been them, who jump right into things, but then fall apart before finishing. James 1.8 says, He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now that verse is not a verse in reference to Peter, But when Jesus first met him, I think it was a pretty accurate description of Peter. Jesus changed Simon's name, it seems, because he wanted the nickname to be a constant reminder to him about who he should be. From that point on, whenever Jesus called him, whatever Jesus called him, was kind of like a personal message. If he called him Simon, he was indicating that he was acting like his old self. If he called him Peter... He was praising him for acting him the way for acting the way he ought to be acting. From then on, Jesus could gently correct or praise him just by using one name or the other. As we read the gospels, it becomes clear uh, that after changing Simon's name, Jesus calls him Simon when he's displaying the characteristics of his old self, when he's sinning in word, attitude, or action. Even the gospel writers follow this pattern. So, for example, in Luke 5, 5, Luke refers to Peter in this way. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. That is young Simon, the fisherman speaking. He's skeptical and reluctant, but as he obeys and the nets are pulled back up full, his eyes are open to who Jesus really is, And Luke begins to refer to him by his new name. Verse 8 says, Luke writes, When Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. So even the gospel writers begin to refer to Peter, sometimes as Peter, sometimes as Simon, sometimes as Simon Peter. In the gospels, Jesus calls him Simon in reference to the key failures in his life as a disciple. In Luke 22:31, for telling Peter's betrayal, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Later, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Peter should have been watching and praying with Christ, he fell asleep. Mark writes, Jesus came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. 
The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And this happens over and over as we go through the Gospels. When Peter needed scolding, he re Jesus refers to him as Simon. I can kind of imagine that it reached the point where whenever the Lord called him Simon, Peter probably cringed. He was probably thought, oh, I did it again. He was probably thinking, please call me the rock. And I can imagine that Jesus might have replied, I'll call you the rock when you start to act like a rock. The Apostle John knew Peter extremely well. They were lifelong friends, business associates, and neighbors. Interestingly, in the Gospel of John, John refers to his friend 15 times as Simon Peter. Evidently, John couldn't make up his mind which name to use, probably because he frequently saw both sides of Peter. So he simply put both names together. In fact, Simon Peter is what Peter calls himself in the address of the second epistle. In 2 Peter 1.1, he writes, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. After the resurrection, Jesus instructed his disciples to return to Galilee, where he planned to appear to them. Impatient Simon apparently got tired of waiting, so he announced he was going back to fishing. John 21.3 says, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So Jesus meets them on the shore the following morning, and he prepares breakfast for them. And the main point of this meeting seems to be the restoration of Peter, who had committed the stunning sin of denying Christ on the night he was betrayed after swearing to die for him. Three times Jesus addresses him as Simon and says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Three times Peter affirms his love. That was the last time Jesus ever had to call him Simon. A few weeks later on Pentecost, Peter and the rest of the apostles are filled with the Holy Spirit. And it is Peter the rock who stood up to preach that day. It's Peter the Rock who wrote First and Second Peter. Peter was exactly like most of us today, both worldly and spiritual. He fell into the habits of the flesh sometimes, and other times he walked in the spirit. He was sinful sometimes, but other times he acted the way a righteous man should. And that's really why he's my favorite disciple because I see so much of myself in his character and walk. This indecisive man, sometimes Simon, sometimes Peter, ends up being the leader of the 12. In every place that there's a list of all 12 uh, disciples in the gospel, Peter is always listed first. And the fact that this broken, messed up, knucklehead of a man becomes the apostle Peter, the rock, gives me great hope. And I pray that it does you as well, because I think if we were honest, we could all at times claim the title knucklehead. Okay, 1 Peter 1, 1 through 3 says this. To those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, 
for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter's intended readers were the elect exiles of the dispersion, or Jewish and Gentile believers scattered around the Roman Empire. The places named are now part of Turkey, and Peter probably wrote this letter from Rome sometime around A.D. 64, shortly before he was martyred. He later, in the text, warns of coming persecution and encourages believers to stand firm in the grace of God during increasing suffering. Now, to be honest with you, I wasn't going to address the elect exiles or the foreknowledge of God. It's a hot topic, and I'll be honest, I'm not an expert by any means. That seemed a bit disingenuous to me, though, and so I'll attempt to explain this as best I can. By the way, I don't know if Jackie will be here for coffee with the pastor in the morning, but I won't be. So, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, believers have been born again to a living hope, and it's this hope that will be our focus from the text today. When we were born for the first time, we were not born for glory. All flesh is like grass, and it's glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. It's 1 Peter 1, 24. The miracle of our salvation all begins with God. We were chosen by the Father. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So foreknowledge or predestination does not suggest that God merely knew ahead of time that we would believe and therefore he chose us. This would raise the question, who or what, made us decide for Christ and would take our salvation completely out of God's hands. Scripture makes it clear that apart from the Holy Spirit, we cannot come to God. Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And John 15, 26 says, but when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. We cannot, we are unable to come to Jesus under our own power. So why then does God need to draw us to salvation? The answer is simple, because if he didn't, we would never come. The unbelieving person has no ability to come to God. In fact, he doesn't even have the desire to come. Because his heart is hard and his mind is dark, the unbeliever has no desire for God. 
and is actually an enemy of God. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? You notice it says, while we were enemies. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. This foreknowledge of God, this knowledge, this predestination took place deep in eternity before God spoke creation into existence. And we knew nothing about it until it was revealed to us in his word. This election is not based on anything we had done because we weren't even born yet. It's also not based on anything God saw that we would be or would do. God's election is based solely on his grace and love. We may not be able to explain it, but we can rejoice in it. Romans 11:33 through 36 says this. Oh, the depth and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Great passage of scripture. We cannot begin to understand the mind of our unsearchable God. And we cannot begin to understand his inscrutable ways. But the plan of salvation includes more than the Father's electing love and foreknowledge. It also includes the work of the Spirit in convicting the sinner and bringing him to faith in Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14 says this, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus had to die on the cross for our sins, or there could be no salvation. We have been chosen by the Father, purchased by the Son, and set apart by the Spirit. It takes the ministry of all three if there's to be a true experience of salvation. As far as God the Father is concerned, I was saved when he chose me in Christ before the creation of time. As far as the Son is concerned, I was saved when he paid the price for my sins, dying on the cross. As far as the Spirit is concerned, I was saved one night in 1981 at a place called Melody Land Christian Center in Anaheim, California. There, I heard the gospel. I was miraculously healed of an addiction to marijuana and received Christ. That night, everything came together. But it took the Trinity to bring me to salvation. We must not separate the combined ministries of the Father, Son, and Spirit because to do so will either deny divine sovereignty or remove human responsibility. And Peter, in this epistle, does not deny man's part in God's plan to save sinners. In 1 Peter 1.23, he emphasizes the fact 
that the gospel was preached to us and that it was heard and believed. The same God who ordains the end, our salvation, also ordains the means to the end, the preaching of the gospel of grace and the mercy of God. So, that's my explanation. You can come see me during the week if you want to talk about it some more. Or hopefully Jackie will be here tomorrow morning and give you a better answer. <laughs> Peter next describes how believers should live in an increasingly hostile world, and he starts with something like with something we all need, hope. Persecution, Peter is going to tell us, is coming. And so he starts with hope. Now, some years ago, there was a popular book by a well-known Texas preacher. The book was entitled, Live Your Best Life Now. At that time, I was ministering to a large homeless population, and for some reason, the book was wildly popular among this population. I mean, it seemed like everybody I talked to in the homeless population was reading this book. And so because of this, I went online and did some research, and here's a couple of quotes from the book. <clears throat> In one part, the author says, it is vital that you accept yourself and learn to be happy with who God made you to be. If you want to truly enjoy your life, you must be at peace with yourself. So that's not so bad. It sounds a little like learning contentment. But then as I researched further, I found stuff like this. You need to follow your own heart in light of God's word and do what you feel is right and good for you. That sent up a couple of warning flags. <clears throat> In the introduction, the reader is encouraged to dream, someday I'll earn more, more money and I won't have to worry about how to pay the bills. <clears throat> God wants to increase you financially. He also writes, even if you come from an extremely successful family, God still wants you to go further. And a little bit further in the book, he writes, get rid of that small-minded thinking and start thinking as God thinks. Think big. Think increase, think abundance, think more than enough. The author explains that this personal quest as people for financial and material increase is pleasing to God. He claims that God wants to pour out his far and beyond favor. God wants this to be the best time of your life. You see, according to the writer, God particularly wants you to experience his goodness in physical, financial, and social ways here and now. Hence the title of the book, Your Best Life Now. Needless to say, if you perhaps have this book on your bookshelf, you might want to toss it in the garbage. I began to, to talk to the homeless people about this, and I would simply hand them the Bible and say, show me in here where it says that we can have our best life now. Many of these people were well-versed in Scripture, and none of them could because, obviously, the Bible doesn't tell us that. But the book was so popular among this population because it told them to dream big and they would receive big without any effort, and that God would supply them with what they dreamed. <clears throat> As I began teaching them why these ideas were false, and it was a difficult discussion, let me tell you, it suddenly dawned on me, for the unbeliever, this life is 
the best there is. For an atheist, for someone who hasn't submitted and admitted his sin and asked Christ to forgive, they are living the best life they're ever going to have. And that's when I realized just how dangerous this book was. It was bringing hope, but the hope was based on a lie and would never satisfy. It was a false hope. I think for just a minute about what I said. If you are an unbeliever here today, this life is as good as it gets. Sure, you may one day make more money or buy a bigger house or a newer car, but those things pale in comparison with the hope that Peter is going to tell us about, with the hope that a believer has. Look around you today. COVID, government interference, poverty, anxiety, stress. If you think this is your best life, then I'm really sorry about that. Peter describes this hope in verses 3 through 4. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Friends, that is a hope you can count on. That is a hope that's worth putting your trust in. This hope is a living hope because it's grounded on the living word of God and was made possible by the living son of God who arose from the dead. 1 Peter 1.23 says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. A living hope is a hope that has life in it, and therefore it can give life to us. Because it has life, it grows, and it becomes greater and more precious as time goes on. Time, on the other hand, destroys all worldly hopes. They fade, and then they die. The money becomes devalued through inflation. The car breaks down and gets rusty. Somebody bumps it in the parking lot with a shopping cart. And success and even houses eventually break down and become a burden. How many times has that thing that you thought would bring you joy ended up being a burden in your life? But the passing of time only makes a Christian hope that much more glorious. Peter refers to this hope as an inheritance. Because the believer is a child of the king, we share his inheritance and glory. John 17, 22 says, The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus himself is telling God, the glory that God has given him, he has given to us. And don't miss Peter's description of this inheritance because it's completely different from any earthly inheritance. For one thing, it is imperishable, which means that nothing can ruin it. It can't run out. 
You can't lose it. It doesn't go away. Because it's undefiled, it can't be stained or devalued in any way. It will never grow old because it's eternal. It can't wear out and it won't disappoint us in, in any way. In 1 Peter 1.5, this inheritance is called salvation. Verse 5 says, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The believer is already saved through faith in Christ. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. But the completion of our salvation awaits the return of the Savior. Then we will have new glorious bodies. Hey, how many of you here today would like to have a new glorious body? You're too young. But okay, I, I'll give it to you. I, I, that's good. I, I'm telling you, every morning I get up, there's something that doesn't work right that was working fine the day before. Man, I want that glorious body. Come on, Jesus. Then we will have new bodies and enter a new environment. And how many of you would like to have a new environment? I mean, i got to tell you, I love living in Idaho. I, I, I'm from California. Don't hold that against me. I think most of you already know that. But Idaho is so different. I love the drive between Buell and Twin Falls. And as I go through cornfields and cows and sheep and llamas, it's just so amazing. It's just so peaceful. The sunrises and the sunsets here are glorious, but I'm telling you, friends, I still want that new environment of the heavenly city. That, that environment, that place that Jesus has gone ahead to make for us. In 1 Peter 1.7, Peter calls this hope the appearing of Jesus Christ. And Paul in Titus calls this hope the blessed hope. Do you realize here this morning, do you realize when you get up and, and you look in the mirror and you sit down at the table and drink your morning cup of coffee, do you realize that we were born for glory? I don't think about that very often. But I think we need to. We would all do well to remember that when we were born again, we exchanged the false glory of man, and oh, is man's glory false. We exchanged that false glory for the eternal glory of God. Not only is the glory being reserved for us, but we are being kept for the glory. I used to be a traveling salesman, and for several years I traveled all over the United States, and a couple of times around the world uh, to various countries. And occasionally there would be delays and missed flight connections. And sometimes I would arrive at my car rental or my hotel only to discover that my reservation had been given to someone else. One time I even checked into the hotel and unlocked the door and went into the bathroom and came out of the bathroom and there was a man sleeping in the bed. This kind of stuff is not going to happen to us when we arrive in heaven. There's not going to be somebody else sleeping in your bed. Our future home and inheritance are guaranteed 
and reserved. But what if I don't make it, I used to ask myself. Well, if you think that way, don't, don't take this as, a, as an offense, but that's immature thinking. Believers are not kept by their own power. If we were kept by our own power, we would have no hope. But we are kept by the power of God. We're not kept by our strength. We're kept by his faithfulness. And how long will he guard us? Scripture tells us he will guard us until Jesus Christ returns. And then we will share in the full revelation of his great salvation. This assurance of heaven should be of great encouragement to us today. It's been said, who can mind the journey when the journey leads us home? If suffering today means glory tomorrow, then suffering becomes a blessing to us. The unsaved have their glory now. They have their best life now. But it will be followed by eternal suffering and away from the presence of the glory of God. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10, warns us of the judgment of Christ on unbelievers. It says, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Friends, that does not sound like a good time to me. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. You, friends, have heard the gospel and you hopefully have believed it. Have you ever looked around the mess that is this world and thought, is this all there is? For the believer, the answer to that question is no. This is not all there is. For those who love this life and all of its fate and glory, the answer is yes. This is all there is for you. This is it. Struggle, fear, pain, and then eternal torment away from the presence of the glory of God. This world of ours today needs hope. And we are the ones who should be spreading this hope. Let me encourage you, don't be satisfied with the world's hope and glory. That end is not going to be a pleasant one. Because God's power guards the believer's salvation through faith, we can rejoice with hope. But here Peter begins to warn of trials in verses 6 and 7. It says in this, in this you rejoice, speaking there of your salvation, in your, in your salvation you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Until Christ returns, the believer must go through testing. A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. Our suffering is for but a season, as the Lord sees it. And oftentimes for us, it seems much longer than that, doesn't it? But the glory will be forever. Verse 7 compares the trial of our faith to the testing of gold. It is a testing as through fire, a purifying fire that burns off impurities so that only the precious metal remains. Peter wrote this, most likely from Rome, during a time when persecution of Christians was about to become an official edict. Um, so you've probably heard of the Great Fire of Rome, which was caused by the then Emperor Nero, and he blamed that fire on Christians. And this guy was totally insane, and he actually dipped believers in wax and burned them in his courtyard as to light up his courtyard. So the suffering that Peter's talking about here is nothing like the suffering that we're talking about today, but it may be coming. Look around us today. Who's the bad guy in every TV show? Who's the one who looks like, a, like an idiot? Who are the ones that are being legislated against? It's us sitting here. Christianity is about to face persecution in the United States. And I'm not talking about you can't wear your cross necklace to work. I'm talking about you may not be allowed to work. We need to be prepared for these times, but we need to know that we can face these times with the hope of our everlasting salvation. Now, I doubt that anyone prays, God, bring me more trials. I've never prayed that. But let's be honest here. Trials serve a purpose in the life of a believer. The phrase, if necessary, indicates that there are special times when God knows that we need to go through trials. Sometimes, trials discipline us when we have disobeyed God's will. We like to call those consequences. At other times, trials prepare us for spiritual growth or even help us to prevent from sinning. We do not always know the need being met, but we can trust God to know and to do what is the best for us. And again, let's be honest. If you are at all like me, and frankly most people I know, it is during the trials of life that we experience the most growth. But here's the good news. Even though we don't like them, trials are controlled by God. They do not last forever. Peter tells us they are for a season. Warren Wiersbe says this. He says, When God permits his children to go through the furnace, he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. If we rebel, he may have to reset the clock. But if we submit, he will not permit us to suffer one minute too long. The important thing is that we learn the lesson he wants to teach us and that we bring glory to him alone.
Our trying experience of, experiences of today are preparing us for the glory of tomorrow. When we finally see Jesus, we will bring praise and honor and glory to him if we, have, if we have been faithful in the sufferings of this life. Romans 8, 16 through 18 says this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This explains why Peter associated rejoicing with suffering. It's hard to rejoice as we look around in our trials, but through faith, we can rejoice as we look ahead in our trials. In this closing section of the text, Peter teaches us about the confidence and joy that can be found in our salvation. Verses 8 through 9 says, Though you have not yet, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Love and believe. Love Jesus and believe in him. Another way to, to describe belief is trust. And love and trust are two critical parts of any significant relationships. Those of you who are married, how would your relationship be if one or the other was missing? Love and trust, they're crucial to relationships. In, for, in verse 8, Peter emphasizes these qualities as essential to the believer's relationship with Christ and vital to experience the joy that results. It's interesting to me that Peter, the rock, who was also frequently called Simon, says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. He commends his readers on their faith and trust that leads to joy, even though they've never seen Jesus. It's interesting to me because, one, this is a commendation that applies to us today. We haven't seen Jesus, but we trust, we love, and believe in him. And two, this is the very same Peter, talking about us believing who have not seen, who after living with Christ for three years, failed to live up to that love and trust when Jesus was betrayed. I often wonder, while writing this section, if Peter was remembering Jesus asking, Simon, do you love me? And that gives me hope. Because my trust and my belief are not always as strong as they should be. Faith accepts the revealed account of Jesus in the Gospels. Faith leads believers to love him. Faith and love stir a desire for knowledge, and the more you know him, the more joy you will experience, no matter what is happening around you. C.S. Lewis once wrote this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong 
but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I think he's right. I think our desires tend towards those things that will bring us happiness. And maybe they do for a time. New clothes, the latest piece of technology, maybe a raise at work. But ultimately, happiness fades. That new phone that I bought last year, guess what? Now there's an iPhone 13, and I want that one. The, the joy of that iPhone 12 made me really happy for a while. But it's fading. We were made for deeply spiritual joy that can only be found when we truly understand and appreciate our salvation. Not only that, but this joy is inexpressible and filled with glory. It's a joy so divine that it cannot be explained with human speech. Peter is telling us that we can experience the supernatural love and transcendent joy today. We don't have to wait. It's not just held for the future. And friends, our society could use hope, but boy, could our country and our families and our communities use some joy. But wait, there's more. This faith and love that brings inexpressible joy results in our salvation. The word translated obtaining could literally be written as presently receiving for yourselves. Receiving what? Receiving the salvation of our souls. It's here now. It already belongs to us. It won't be complete until Jesus returns. But today, we can experience the joy of that salvation. Finally, Peter tells us of the wonder of salvation. Starting in verse 10, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, us. We have lost much of the wonder of God. And I think that's to our detriment, that's to our harm. It's hard to worship a God you think you understand. In fact, a God that you think you understand is going to quickly become you. Here, Peter speaks about the prophets of old, how they foretold of the glorious salvation to come through Jesus, and they looked ahead to the time when the Messiah would come, and he would gather believers from all nations. They were fascinated. They longed to understand how this was going to happen. Speaking of Old Testament prophets, the writer of Hebrews tells in 11.13, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. They, the Old Testament prophets, looked forward with hope to the first coming 
just as we look forward in hope to the second. God has always offered salvation through faith throughout the Bible. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as faith. Old Testament believers were saved by a future grace. New Testament believers by a past grace. And the cross is the height of that redemption. So wondrous is this salvation that even angels long to see it. We are fascinated in our society by angels and and so often in the wrong way. You know, we got angels in our pocket, angels on our shelves. Uh, We wonder about personal angels and, and we don't stop to really look at what the scripture tells us about angels. We wonder about what they know and what they do and what it's like to experience the unseen world in the way that they do. But here Peter tells us that angels wonder what it's like to experience the grace and glory of salvation and God's forgiveness from sin. These beings that live in the heavenly realms are fascinated by the salvation that we are receiving. They're part of God's great plan of salvation. An angel spoke to Mary. The angels announced the coming of Christ and sang in the sky to the shepherds. They're part of the plan, but they long to understand it more fully because salvation is not for them. They don't need to be saved. No matter how difficult life's trials are, believers can face them with hope and with joy. God has graciously given us a salvation that the prophets studied, the Holy Spirit inspires to us, the apostles preached, and the angels continue to be invest, to investigate. Let's be thankful and not lose our wonder and our joy at that salvation. Don't you stand and let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for the the mysteries that are revealed to us in your word. And, And Lord, we don't understand all of them. I confess there's so much that I don't understand, but the things that I do understand are probably the things I struggle with the most. Help us, God, to live lives that do and obey the clear things of Scripture as we seek to understand those deep mysteries. Help us, God, to not lose our wonder at the things that you have done, the way you created, the way you continue to create, the wondrous beauty in creation, the, the amazing differences between people and how together they can act as one for one purpose. Help us, God, to be people who seek your wonder, who recognize your wonder, and who have inexpressible joy at our salvation. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We thank you, God, for this church and for the things that you are doing and working in us here in Buell. I pray that you continue to guide us, that you give us grace and mercy, that we love one another as you have commanded. And in the Spirit of God, not like humans love. 
Lord, we just are so grateful. We seek to glorify you in all we do. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.